happen now. We want to welcome our viewers from across the United States and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room. Good morning, good day, good evening. This is EdTech Situation Room, episode number 142 on July 24, 2019. I am Jason Neifer. I am the Assistant Director and Curriculum Director of the Montana Digital Academy, the state virtual school located on the University of Montana campus in fabulous Missoula, Montana. But tonight, I'm joining you from a special location, special remote location. I'm in Helena, Montana tonight, participating in the state of Montana state social studies standards review process uh, through our Office of Public Instruction. And joining me tonight, as always, Dr. Wes Fryer. Good evening, Dr. Fryer. How are you today? Good evening. I am wonderful. I've been enjoying the week at home. My wife is up in Boston at Project Zero at Harvard with half of their first through fourth grade team and all of her third grade team, actually. And so I have been batching it and had the opportunity to call AAA with my daughter and uh, get towed this evening. So glad to be here on time for the show. What is this show, Jason? What are we What are we going to do here? Are we going to talk about tow trucks and weather? Well, I like tow trucks and weather, but our usual topics relate to headlines ripped from uh, sources from around the world on technology news. And we tend to give them a little bit of an education spin. Both Wes and I work in educational technology in some way, shape or form. And we like to talk a little bit about what does the what do the head, tech headlines mean to you as educators, whether you are a classroom teacher, paraprofessional, IT professional, administrator. We like to kind of chat about what the future means um, for classrooms. And if you're interested in finding out more about the links we talk about any given week, you can go to our website at techsr.com. You can see show notes there uh, of, of past episodes. You can listen to past episodes and you can see the Google Doc that Wes and I share together where we talk about the things that are interesting in any particular week. So Wes, where would you like for us to start this week? Well, why don't we start on some privacy articles? I saw that you had put a couple in. Um, I dropped one in, which, by the way, if people want to check this out, you can find these at edtechsr.com slash links. Um, this is an article from Mind Matters News and from uh, Russ White. And this is from July the 1st. And the article is entitled, Why You Can't Just Ask Social Media to Forget You. And we've been talking on the show for weeks and weeks about the perhaps inevitability of some regulation, the ways in which, you know, the platforms right now, especially, you know, talking primarily Facebook, Twitter, YouTube are, you know, not uh, required to um, be moderating content and to, uh, you know, be protecting privacy of the United States citizens. And so anyway, this is a very thought provoking article saying you know, there's really not a silver bullet that we can just have, um, you know, passed. There's a uh, author, Ned Ryan, <clears throat> who has, quote, proposed the individual's personal data is sovereign to the individual and individuals have explicit right to control the data. And so he hopes that, you know, we can have some kind of regulation that way. The Electronic Frontier Foundation, EFF, that we've, you know, talked about multiple times, uh, is arguing for something called adversarial interoperability, which would mean that your data basically is stored in common formats, and then you're going to be able to take your information and access it. Uh, basically, it's going to be a standard-based approach. Um, but what it's saying is that social networks know things, number one, because of the hours and time and, and um, 
you know, expertise that they put into that the algorithms they've written, you know, to make inferences and put things together in terms of the profiles. But then also there are privacy implications because you're not your information is tied to, I guess, the information of others. And so there's private property claims. Um, yeah, that could, it, you know, you could end up being exposed. And then there's really not an obvious way to just say, forget me, because the data is in so many different, you know, pieces and places and things like that. So basically, I think the article says it's just, it's really complicated and there's not going to be, you know, a single silver bullet solution to this issue of how do we, assert some control over what is the new oil, the new gold of the 21st century. And that is personal data that is being in most cases voluntarily given up by people and then monetized by the platform. So Jason, do you have words of wisdom relating to, you know, these topics, especially as they might apply to students, but, but teachers as well uh, in terms of data privacy and what we should, what we should advocate for, because this article kind of leaves me like, Oh man, I, I, I was hoping that EFF or somebody was going to solve it. And apparently they, they're not. Sure. Well, I mean, I think part of this is, is that we're, there's an ongoing conversation about regulation and this will probably be an appropriate time to talk about that, that uh, we didn't get to it last week, but Facebook has been fined $5 billion, which is the largest fine uh, given by um, uh, the, I can't remember the FCC or FTC, but one of the two gave the, gave Facebook a $5 billion fine. And of course the coverage in the next 48 hours uh, was twofold. First, the fact that you know, $5 billion is like, you know, couch change at Facebook headquarters, right? That, that it will not affect even the short-term bottom line all that much for Facebook. But secondarily, that the agreement that was announced, um, doesn't really seem to imply that Facebook is going to change its practices. And, you know, I, I, I think Wes and I have both been pretty strong advocates for net neutrality and keeping your hands off of the internet because an unregulated internet was part of what created the massive dot com expansion and, and a lot of really cool technologies, but we're going to have to figure out a way to regulate the internet in a way that does not hurt us, um, whether you're talking about our society from the standpoint of elections, our society from the standpoint of social cohesiveness, um, or the fact that our data seems so unbelievably vulnerable in all of these social tools. From a classroom standpoint, I'm still not really sure where this fits. It fits probably everywhere as part of the problem. And unfortunately, it's been a long time since I've been in a K-12 classroom. I have been in a number of, of higher education classrooms as a teacher in the last uh, a decade. I'm a little jealous, Wes, of your new role where you will be back into a classroom again talking about these issues with kiddos. But, you know, the, our, our students have evolved quite a bit since I've been last in a classroom. I would still argue that the whole digital this thing is probably still a suspect construct. But what is happening, though, is that the kids that are coming into our classrooms, I'm not talking about our high school classrooms, I'm talking about really middle elementary up now, have cell phones or using cell phones and oftentimes are in households where the family is not really um, doing the job of helping students understand you know, what the inputs and outputs are in regards to data, personal data and privacy. And I don't really blame parents for that. I think part of it is that there's so little good information, like easy to understand information for doing that. I'll give a shout out to you, Wes, the number of times you've brought parents into your school to talk about uh, 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 net-based issues, privacy, um, you know, parent education, I think is, is a key part of this. But in absence of that, we also owe our students to be talking about these issues in, in a pretty nuanced way as well. But, you know, I, I guess really 
you know, short of, of uh, band glass, uh, well, although you could talk about copyright band glass, you know, I'm not sure if the digital literacy or broader digital citizenship topics don't belong wherever you're at in the K-12 continuum. Yeah, definitely. All right, we're next, sir. Well, um, there's a lot of interesting technical stories this week. Maybe I'll jump into the Google ones first um, because they are of interest to me more directly. Um, first, I want to mention something that, that's coming true to a Chromebook near you. Um, by the way, I'm starting to uh, work on a presentation I'll be doing, uh, well, hopefully be doing. I'm proposing to the NCC conference uh, in, in March in Seattle, Washington. Um, and I do feel obligated to let everyone know that if you're interested, uh, NCCE's uh, application to present at their conference uh, uh, the deadline is August 1st. And so if you go to ncc.org, you too can apply to present at uh, just a really great West Coast uh, ed tech experience. But I'm working on a session right now that's called Chrome or Advanced Chromebookology. Like now that I have really, you know, gone all in on Chromebooks and it's really 90, 95% of my computer time is on a Chromebook, I want to share some of the things that I do um, that are kind of advanced Chrome user pieces that, that help me be super productive on Chromebooks. But this is a big one for me. Um, uh, uh, Chrome Unboxed, which is, I think, my favorite Chrome blog. It's between this and about Chromebooks. But Chrome Unboxed um, on July 21st announced two things. First, we know that virtual desktops was coming to Chrome. That's the notion that's available on Macs and Windows, where you can have different desktops, virtual desktops that you can flip back and forth from. I like to use it to create different workspaces for different projects or perhaps communication on one, something productive on another and another. Um, we know that's been coming for, for, for several months now. But there's also going to be a keyboard command um, that will allow us to or will allow you to switch back and forth between those. And then also a gesture. Um, I believe it's going to be a four finger gesture um, that will allow you to switch between the different uh, uh, virtual desktops. And, you know, I don't know a lot of people that pull off virtual desktops, uh, not because they, they they can't. It's because they oftentimes don't know about them. Um, it was my favorite feature in in uh, Mac OS uh, when I was predominantly a Mac guy and eventually made it to Windows and now to Chromebooks. But in fact, at one point, uh, when Wes, you and I first met face to face, you called them Jedi tricks with, with your uh, Mac touchpad. And, you know, the same is now going to be available on Chrome. So I'm super um, uh, interested in, in that notion coming to Chromebooks uh, near you. And then one other quicker article here, and then um, I want to ask you a little more about, about Chromebooks in your school, Wes. Um, Apparently, there is a lot of evidence, and this is from a, from a number of sources, that more Chromebooks are going to be available with an LTE option. And the reason why that's interesting to me, the very first Chromebook, the CR48, actually had integrated LTE into it, or I'm sorry, integrated cell coverage into it. I don't know if it was LTE or not, but the idea was is you could get free 200 megs a month of, of bandwidth, which is not a whole lot. Uh, to, to work with, but still, you know, nice in a pinch. And then the first Chromebook I had, which was an early Samsung Chromebook, also had 200 megabytes of free uh, uh, cell coverage. Um, it's interesting to me because I feel like Google has been kind of going all in on instant tethering between Android phones and the Chromebook. But I have to say that when I'm using my Pixel 3a and my Pixel Book, so these are the flagship uh, a phone and Chromebook experience, the tethering is not that solid and it takes a while to get to it. And in fact, 
for me, it's a lot quicker just to turn on mobile hotspot on my phone and connect to it that way. So um, uh, I know a lot of Macs on your campus, Wes, but uh, any of the new Chromebook features attempting to you either as an end user or someone that does advise on, on the purchasing of equipment? You know, I think we're still uh, very much challenged and not at capacity in terms of utilizing you know, features that we've had, you know, within Google Google Apps and on on, on the Chromebooks. Uh, we purchased the Lenovo 300e, I think, Chromebooks. A couple years ago, we got a couple carts of those. Those are the ones that actually you can use a number two pencil as a stylus on. Um, but I don't, I did not have the opportunity, uh, this last year to experiment with those and really play with them. Um, I don't know that our faculty did. So, um, you know, it's going to be an interesting year. I don't know for sure, but I, I really have a sense that we're going to talk a lot about one to one, especially at our middle school, uh, this next year. And, um, you know, one of the things that we finally bit the, the bullet on is we, we signed up for Adobe and the Creative Cloud and to do a site license. And so 2,500 bucks that got us 500 licenses and the, you know, expectation is that that's going to be primarily for our high school students uh, as well as for faculty staff that want to have access to the Adobe products. I mention that because those are software client applications that don't currently run on a Chromebook. Now, some of the emulation and terminal stuff and things like that they're developing, it's going to be real interesting to see where that goes. But anyway, I um, am, am fully expecting, you know, pretty soon as, upon returning back to work in August that uh, we'll be underway with a lot of conversations about one-to-one. -one. And the easy solution really is, you know, let's, let's just go with Chromebooks. But especially the conversations we've had, Jason, about like, you know, three years and end of life and, and those kind of things. I mean, that that really needs to inform the decision we make. We get such mileage, you know, out of our max. And uh, we've have uh, grades five through eight in our middle school. So, you know, if you're looking at getting a laptop at fifth grade um, and it's only going to be a three year, you know, Chrome device, I mean, that may not even get you to the end of middle school, much less into high school. So I think the return on investment and, and those kind of calculations, as well as, of course, what what, you, what it is that you want to do with it. Um, I am continued to be intrigued with your, uh, you know, I would I would say it could be your your Google and Chrome Kool-Aid level. So like if we were rating it out of 100, you know, I think right, you're, right. you're tapping out close to 99. Um, and that's great um, because I do think that, you know, of the vast majority of things that we are probably doing in school, we can do really well within the Chrome browser. So I think security's got a way into that as well. Um, and so obviously there's a bunch of different factors. I mean, you can end up getting another Chromebook in three years and, you know, coming, coming out ahead unless Apple does something really surprising and like comes out with, let's say a MacBook that's, you know, somewhere closer to the $500 range. Right. They're not, they're not doing that. So anyway, um, I'm not really being grabbed by any particular new features, but I think we may have mentioned last week, the announcement at, <clears throat> at Google, or I mean, at ISTE about Google classroom, I think integrating better now into student information systems and right. maybe really stepping into being a full blown learning management system. Um, that's probably the most exciting thing I've heard this summer with respect to, uh, you know, Chrome, but that's, Obviously, Google Classroom is a cross cross platform thing. It's not just a Chromebook deal, right? Well, and a couple of quick notes about this. So, 
Um, uh, one of the things, and we've mentioned this in context of, of, of consumer purchases, but this also applies to, to schools, I think. One of the things that's happened, it's less so, but because I, I have vendors across my desk pretty regularly trying to sell me computers, even though we're not in the student computer business um, at, at, at the State Virtual School in Montana. But one of the things that's true is that, you know, the older Chromebooks don't have a very long life to them. You can buy a Chromebook that is, is, is two or three years old, and it may be cheap, but it oftentimes comes with with very modest hardware, much more modest hardware than I think uh, uh, an even average user might need. But also, Chromebooks released in 2019 have six and a half years of guaranteed updates to them, right? Which is a, in my mind, is about as long as I'd want to keep a um, a computer. Uh, is, in- is that for a top end, or is that? Oh, no, that's that's all of them. Yeah, okay. they're guaranteed now to have six and a half years. Uh, okay. Of- of, of life. And before it was five, but the, the issue was, was that a lot of schools were purchasing dirt cheap Chromebooks because they heard about Chromebooks and they just didn't understand the architecture enough. And by the time they had purchased them early days, it was five. Uh, actually the earliest days, there was no deadline. Then they started announcing uh, end of life because the earliest Chromebooks were, um, uh, just too slow to, to have a good user experience. Then they started with five and then eventually moved to six and a half. Okay. Uh, is their current current policy that assumes one purchased this year, right? So the problem, of course, with that is that if you are buying at a discount, or if you know you get the back of the truck offer, which sometimes comes schools' ways, especially if you know a company well and they make it a surplus of a large number. But I also question if you're buying a low end Chromebook, even if it has six and a half years of updates. My guess is is that four or five years into that with the modest Chromebooks, I just think the experience would be terrible. I just think it'd be very slow and, and unpleasant and, and underwhelming. Um, so for me, um, you know, if you are buying a higher end Chromebook, that's one thing. And, and, and obviously I don't use a, a cheap Chromebook as my daily driver. I have some in the office that we utilize for testing purposes and that we'll sometimes do in a pinch or if I'm just typing without other tabs open, it's just fine. But I'm using, you know, usually $400 to $800 Chromebooks as opposed to $100 to $300 Chromebooks. And that makes a pretty huge difference. But, um, you know, if you're talking about the $400 range, then, and, and you're buying it as, at a couple of years old and it only has, you know, three or four years of life, probably at $300, I think it's okay to turn those over in that particular way. But, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it you definitely have to do your research and make sure that you're jumping in. Cause I think a six year old MacBook, particularly a MacBook Pro, if that's what you're going with, is likely to be much more functional after six years than a low-end Chromebook, even if it is a more premium-priced product to start with. So one of the quick Google article, and then we can move on to other topics this week. Um, We've mentioned in the past, I've turned into uh, a Wear OS guy. That's Android's uh, watch operating system. My current Watch I'm wearing right now is uh, this. I picked this up used for like 40 bucks. It's a Zen Watch 2. It's a two-year-old watch that uh, didn't really take off. And I actually, it's funny because uh, uh, when Android Wear started, they started with square watches. They were considered to be geeky. Um, and so they moved towards uh, uh, round watches. And then, of course, the, the Apple Watch is square and now this looks more like an apple watch i get this gets mistaken for an apple watch more than anything else and for what i use it for which is mostly health purposes i like the square screen over the the round screen but google has just not done a very good job of keeping up with 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 wear os and although there are updates and in fact the wear os experience um is 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 the best it's ever been 
there's been two broad problems. Google's not putting enough investment in developing this, and they've not been able to nudge chipset makers into coming up with new versions of uh, watch op or I'm sorry, watch systems on chips or SOCs that allow um, you know for evolution in that space. And so I keep crossing my fingers. Um, to be honest, the health features of the Apple Watch are so tempting to me, and I'm not just talking about the heart stuff, although that's part of it. Um, I'm a diabetic. I'm insulin. Dependent. I take uh, a variety of insulins all day long, and, and I have a, a constant glucose monitor that's attached to a part of my body 24-7. And the reason why I started wearing this over a Fitbit was because it would show me up-to-the-minute data on my blood sugar, which allowed me to take more action without having to look at my phone screen to see what was going on. And that is an extraordinary thing to me. Like, I just can't begin to describe um, how that's been a real life changer for me and, and really helped me in, in, in that somewhat difficult to navigate space of, of being an insulin-dependent diabetic. And the bottom line is that if Android can't get their stuff together here, I think there's going to be a lot of people that just because the watch will move to, to Apple. And I, I got to say, like, I, I don't know anyone who was an Android Wear wearer that's still wearing their Apple Watch. I'm sorry, their Android Watch. Oops. There's not a single person that's purchased an Apple Watch that has dropped the platform that I know. Um, and that includes people who are not, like my boss is not an Uber geek. He's tech savvy. He gets it, but he would have been the customer, I guess, that would be buying, uh, buying a wearable and sticking with it. And that, that Apple Watch hasn't left his arm since he purchased it. And he's giving guys a little, a little mini Apple headbuds and, or earbuds and, it's extraordinary. And I just feel like Android is screwing up so badly here by not putting more thought or energy into this process. So just thought I'd mention that because it's a topic we've talked about. Before. So on the, the Apple watch topic, um, this is probably, this is our last Google hangout on air as a easy hangout for us to launch. We're going to be uh, <laughs> sad to see on August 1st, the, the Google hangout on air go away and we're going to be testing a new feature. I've noticed tonight that it doesn't show us how many live viewers we have. I don't know if that's part of their changes to the platform. Uh, shout out to Peggy George, who is in our chat room, and that is wonderful. I'm prefacing this by saying I really don't think my wife is watching the show because I'm about to disclose a birthday present. <laughs> um, so we haven't had any, uh, you know, digital watches, you know, as far as uh, high-tech high uh, smartwatches in our in our house. My sister and her family were here this past weekend, uh, and I went ahead and bought my sister's second-generation Apple Watch from her to give to my wife for her birthday, which I was actually out of town last week for her birthday. So anyway, it's going to be interesting to see that um, just on a personal note, and I've certainly been, of course, eyeing eyeing that and yes for the the health you know standpoint um the biometric feedback and being able to uh you know just have i mean i'm not really as interested in the messaging and that kind of thing as i am you know what seems to be the the number one forte of the watch and that is uh helping you become you know even more healthy and and health conscious and attuned to you know, different kinds of metrics and things like that, that, that relate to health. Um, so related to that, we do have a couple, um, other Apple articles. <clears throat> um, and one of them, uh, and I don't know how this would impact the, the watch, but this is Ars Technica, uh, from yesterday, July 23rd. 
Apple asked Trump administration to exclude Mac parts from tariffs. And as you may know, the United States is poised to have like 25% tariffs uh, slapped on all kinds of electronic products uh, to include evidently a number of parts that are used in the new uh, Mac Pro uh, behemoth you know, computer, which is, you know, not going to be one that probably we're ordering for school anytime soon. Um, but anyway, that is pretty interesting. And, uh, you know, we'll have to track that and see what happens. Uh, is, is Apple, you know, able to, uh, use its influence to get that, get that through? Or are they going to be subject like, you know, the rest of uh, the tech companies to this, uh, basically trade war that's happening between the United States and China and, and can definitely, uh, affect tech. Um, you put the article in about the, the MacBook Pro and the $3,000 starting price. I'm sure, you know, the, uh, the digital, uh, okay, the, uh, um, you know, Montana virtual, virtual academy is going to be happy to, to spring for those for everybody, aren't they? I mean, just, just well, like end of year yeah, bonus, end Mac, of summer new, bonus. New MacBooks for everyone, right? So yeah, I, the reason why I entered that one in there is because I know how much the super the super mobile graphic users love the 17 inch form factor. In fact, for a while, my wife um, in a nonprofit she was working at this is more than a decade ago now was one of the first people I knew that owned one of the 17 inch MacBooks that uh, in the early days, the pre pro days. Um, but it was such a great platform, like just a big, bold, beautiful screen, usually a, a full size keyboard that was a pleasure to type on. And although I've, I have used, uh, we, uh, used a 15 inch before that, that had, uh, crossed my desk for a couple of months, um, on its way to someone else in our office. Uh, it was a wonderful platform. I loved using it. Big, bold, beautiful screen. Wonderful computer to use. Uh, the, the bottom line has always been that, that, um, you know, the 15 is great, but the 17 always seemed that much better. And 16 would be very close to that. It'd be, um, uh, uh, basically what the uh, form factor of the 17 used to be smaller with the same size screen because there would be smaller bezels, um, on the platform. But it's interesting to see. Um, it feels like. Apple may be paying better attention to the needs of pro users again. And while I hope that um, that kind of moves into what some people refer to as the prosumer models, those are models that have usually decent high-end hardware in them, but, you know, aren't intended for people that, that don't scoff at spending $10,000 on a desktop or, or $6,000 on a laptop. Um, I do hope that leads to Apple going more in that space because I think that is something that's still lacking in, in, in their catalog and model, uh, or models available. Um, I'm probably unlikely to go all back in, all back in on Macs again anytime soon. I just am happy where I'm at on the Chrome platform, but it's nice to see them, um, kind of innovating in that space. And so that's coming soon. Um, on the Apple note as well, I'll throw this one in. Uh, this is Ars Technica on July 12th. Um, RPACT returns to App Store, uh, reviving debates about Apple's impartiality. I think we covered this uh, some months ago, but <clears throat> when Apple released iOS 12, which was last fall, I think we did a parent university session about that in December of 2018. Um, one of the best things, I think, and exciting things they released was their screen time functionality uh, and a lot of data that you could not only have about yourself, but you can also have about your kids if you're on the um, the iCloud family, you know, 
plan. Uh, interestingly, you know, as soon as our, our daughter turned 18 and this happened with our son earlier, you know, boom, they're gone. You know, they're not visible there anymore. But if they're under 18, you know, you can see um, apps are using how many pickups they have during the day and you too, you know, which apps are using the most, et cetera, et cetera. Well, at that time, um, Apple basically coincident with that had, I think, taken about 11 different apps um, offline. And part of what they had said was, hey, these apps, um, are really enterprise function because they involve mobile device management and ways in which uh, parents are exerting parental controls, but they are, you know, doing things that are enterprise and basically have privacy implications. And, you know, some people felt like, well, they're also competing with screen time. And so Apple doesn't, you know, want to have competition. They've taken over that function. They want you to, to use the built-in iOS 11, now iOS 12 uh, function. So uh, this article says that those apps have now returned to the store. They have uh, successfully uh, fought against Apple's decision. Um, Apple had claimed this was due to privacy concerns. Um, and there may be some validity to that, you know, because of exploits and malicious attacks and, and things like that that uh, can happen via, uh, you know, these diff different ways of having some cloud-based software control o over your device. But anyway, um, I think from a school standpoint, this is good to know because um, RPACT and some of these other apps are digital parenting apps that, you know, are are things that, that parents probably have used or have interest in. And so probably on the competition is good for the consumer side of things. It's positive to, you know, see those coming back into the app store. Great. So let's uh, jump to, well, this is a little meta, but that meta is always fun. Talk about some news and podcasting. Um, obviously, uh, Wes and I both um, uh, obviously have a podcast. So that That's that. I think we also both listen to a lot of podcasts. I will say that, that a lot of the articles in this week do apply to something um, uh, that I've kind of been engaging in. Uh, I had to make a quick road trip last weekend and went into my podcast app and just got overwhelmed by the list. And I think I had over 400 podcasts that I was subscribed to in my podcast app. And what? so I went through That's and crazy. I, I did a massive, a massive cleaning, like just deleted. If I didn't recognize it, I deleted it. If it was uh, ended, I deleted it. And luckily Pocket Cast, which keeps getting better and better, did uh, has a really easy way to tell you if, if a podcast is likely either on hiatus or ending altogether. Um, as an example, it, it, it's figured out that we generally release our podcast on Thursdays. So uh, it will say the EdTech Situation Room next podcast likely Thursday is what it was. Nice. So, That's cool. Yeah, super cool AI behind by behind that. But um, uh, that that cleansing came at a time that I, I, I there have been a lot of articles in the last week. The the easy one is that um, Apple is going to probably bankroll some original podcast in order to fend away from rivals that are are moving into that space. Uh, we've talked about in past episodes, Spotify picked up Gimlet Media, so they have a, a growing library of podcasts. Uh, we've also talked about Luminary, which is a pay for app that I'm currently purchasing because. It has content that is is, is there um, uh, that's not available elsewhere, including the uh, Note to Self podcast from WNYC with uh, host. And you have to buy you have to buy their app or subscribe to get it. You have to subscribe. It's it's nine ninety five. This is and called fracturing uh, fracturing podcasting behind, behind the paywall. And that's part of my point that I think that that. Um, 
I, there's no word, and I don't think the the Apple article talked about the notion of this would only be available on, on the Apple Podcast app because that would be terrible, in, in my humble opinion. But you know, the the industry is big enough now that you know, and it's accessible to a lot of creators, which you know we we've talked about in the past has upsides and downsides because uh, it can introduce or give a, a megaphone to someone who perhaps is not spreading. Um, you know, large amounts of joy as part of their regular process, while at the same time, you know, it gives an opportunity for, for, you know, smaller audience podcasts like the Tech Situation Room to, to have an audience and be able to be on a consistent platform with, you know, the bigger, bigger uh, pieces. But uh, in a lot of ways, it seems like podcasting is at a crossroads and there is more and more money going into it. And there's two articles this week that say basically uh, the opposite thing. Um, the uh, the Verge uh, on July nineteenth gives some information about how um, you know now it's becoming a very lucrative industry, and I'm not talking about for the kind of um, you know self made uh, podcast hosts that are out there, of which there are, are many that 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 end up doing a, a decent business as a podcast host, um, but also you know big players are in the podcast space, and then you know uh, in the same twenty four hours, uh, the New York Times, uh, and by the way, the the Verge article talks about how there's a lot of international uh, ground that's not being taken up yet. And a lot of people in the United States who would probably enjoy podcast content have not really discovered the space yet. It's still something that is a bit of a mystery um, to a lot of of potential consumers. But the day before, the New York Times uh, talked about how maybe we have hit peak podcast. And it did focus on kind of startup creators and the fact that anyone can have a podcast. And as I think both Wes and I have joked before, the proof of that is, is that Wes and I have a podcast, right? But, you know, the bottom line is that that the industry is starting to come to um, a a head a little bit and probably the next couple of years will be um, interesting uh, in in how podcasts exist, what the industry for podcasting looks like, and if it has a true future. So on that note, um, talking about, you know, the purchase of Gimlet Media by Spotify, the other big purchase they, they did was Anchor. And so one of the reasons that I set up a new podcast um, back in, I want to say April, was I wanted my students, ideally, and I'm, who knows if anybody's going to actually do this, but if they have a smart speaker to be able to say, hey, G, or, uh, you know, lovely uh, Madam A, um, play me the latest episode of blank. And so I'm excited to say um, that the Anchor app, which I firmly believe now, you know, not only on iOS, I haven't used it on Android. You can, you know, use it and see what you think, Jason. It is the fastest uh, an easiest way, I think, to, to make a professional podcast and you can directly publish and it's all free. Hosting is free. Everything is free. Uh, you can, at least on Google Home, say, hey, G, play me the latest episode of Class with Dr. Fryer and you will listen to my latest podcast on Anchor. So I used it last week when I was up in Providence, Rhode Island for the um, Summer Institute on Digital Literacy. Um, I actually ended up downloading the episode and putting it into my my regular podcast that I've got like 1700, at least according to FeedBurner, you know, still subscribers that are, that are uh, coming to that podcast. Um, but um, I agree that the crossroads is here. Um, I certainly think that, you know, it's a wonderful time for content creators and 
uh, for just creatives in general in terms of the tools that we have access to. Um, it's also very challenging with regard to, to disinformation and the ways in which uh, bad actors and folks that are really fringe um, folks that, that wouldn't have certainly gotten play in mainstream media today, you know, can have a loud, uh, a loud megaphone. So uh, I'm going to be disappointed if we start to see the same thing in podcasting that we're seeing, you know, between Netflix and HBO and Hulu and these other channels. And that is, Hey, you know, we've got our custom content. Um, you know, you gotta, you gotta pay to come to our platform. And, and I totally get that in terms of, uh, video and, and that environment, but podcasting has historically been a very open format. Um, you know, there were people like Leo Laporte who runs the This this Week in Tech and the Twit Network, uh, so concerned about, you know, Apple maybe trying to come after people using the podcasting name. They've used the term netcasts for years. And, um, you know, I, I think those of us that have been involved in podcasting for a long time, uh, I'm speaking out of turn, but I'm I'm definitely a huge advocate of openness and not saying, oh, you know, you can only subscribe using the Apple podcast app or whatever. Sometimes people would only advertise that link. And then you really have to kind of do some work to say, like, what's the RSS link, the you know subscription link that I need to put this into my you know podcatcher uh, or whatever. So. I uh, think I'm probably going to do an assignment that's pod, that's podcasting based. That's an interview, uh, you know, with with students. Um, that's one of the things that I've got to, you know, work out here in the the next few weeks. Um, th- thankfully, <laughs> teaching fifth and sixth grade, at least at our school, is not quite like teaching an undergraduate or graduate course where the whole syllabus has got to be essentially written in stone, signed in blood, and you know, done at the very first class period. Um, I'll be able to have a little more agility and flexibility with what we do. But anyway, I've been thinking about that. And I think that helping people connect with podcasts and long form media content, which of course you, you know, YouTube hosts as well. Um, but it can really be transformative, right? In, in the same way that reading a book can be transformative because you have this long opportunity to, to have these ideas, you know, enter into your brain and marinate. Podcasting does the same thing. So. Are you looking to launch a new podcast empire beyond the scope of the EdTech Situation Room in the next year, Jason? Well, I feel like, Wes, that with, you know, the the 20 hours we each put into the production of this podcast each week, right, <laughs> that there's just no time for other voices. I do like that notion that, um, you know, of of there are people that it literally is worth listening to them talk for 20 minutes while they're commuting to work. Right. Like that's a, uh, that's a, that's a, 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 a real value that I think tools like that can be very valuable for. But I also like the notion that, you know, I, as, as podcasts become more professional and, and, and more widely distributed and, and also, um, uh, uh, you know, I guess commercial in nature that I'd like it, that there's an app you can download that allows you to podcast with a click of a button, right? I think that's a great thing. And, and, and having that audience is, is, is a pretty wonderful thing. And in the same way that, you know, the, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a broadcast YouTube button on my phone. And I think that's a, an enormously cool thing that, um, uh, really, I, I think provides a lot of opportunity for people to have agency about about talking about the important things in their lives and, and important uh, stuff that's going on in our world. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty sweet thing. 
And I just say overall about that, I think we need to continue to remind um, everybody, you know, fellow educators, but also, um, you know, parents, students, there's so much value in social media, especially because it gives us this opportunity to kind of hang out with other brains, right? Like at a very basic level, all of us should aspire to try to hang out with people much smarter than we are. And Jason, that that's why I'm here every week, right? To be able to just have some of that wisdom, you know, through the ether, hopefully come over here. Um, and to, to be challenged, right? The people that are doing the things we want to do, thinking about the things we want to think about, have skills that we want. And so I just... I think that we are hearing and we'll probably continue to hear such amplification of how toxic social media is, how how poisonous, you know, Twitter can be, uh, how terrible the trolls are. And and they are. They can be. But you don't have to live in that world. Right. I, I thought about writing a, a blog post and I might where like the Twitter I live, the Twitter world I live in is different than yours or something, you know, and I really pardon me. I get this sometimes talking to different people, like I, I realize, like I literally live in a different headspace in, in some respects because of podcasts, the influence that I have or the influence that other people have over me, you know, because I'm listening to them. And anyway, I think that it's important that we continue to evangelize that because the mainstream message, much as it is kind of with screen time is it's all evil. It's all bad. Just throw those things away. You know, the message can be that social media is so toxic. Why don't we just ban it and do away with it? Um, And I want to say no way, Jose, because you know, my life has been enhanced and enriched in so many different ways. Hey, we wouldn't be having this conversation and, you know, meeting with, meeting with Peggy every week, right? If it wasn't, you know, this opportunity that social media presents us to have this niche and to connect in incredibly powerful ways, right? Like we could never have done this until I, I mean, we could have, the web heads were doing this in the, in the mid, you know, nineties and late nineties and whatever, but like the bar was still pretty high for being able to do this. And arguably, right. You know, we've got a geek quotient going here. Um, but it's, it, it just is, uh, it's phenomenal. And so I, I, uh, want to continue all course, as we say at the end of the show for people to reach out to us, right. It's definitely, you know, we, you see statistics about downloads and whatnot. Um, but Hey, if there's an idea that you have, if there's something that you, you wonder about, uh, or just when people are listening to the show, that's cool, right? It doesn't happen that often that people will actually, you know, tweet that and share that. But that's something I, I try to do a lot in social media as I'm listening to people, as I hear and I, you know, ideas, I go ahead and share those. And I, I think it makes a difference, right? When people are hearing from the audience, uh, knowing what resonates and being able to have that kind of a, fee- a feedback. I mean, that's what makes the interactive web, the interactive um, internet, I think, uh, still a magical place, even though it's filled with disinformation and poison and lots of negative stuff too. So, Right, absolutely. And I would also note too, that if you're if, if you don't like your social media feed, Start a new one, right? Like I, I one of the things that that I've been uh, very very careful about on Twitter is that my Twitter is full of education stuff because I and Twitter talk about education, and I will once in a while tiptoe into politics, but I've actually created a separate handle that's not associated with me. That it it, it it's not it's not about my identity as much as it's about just having a different feed for that that purpose. But as it turns out, you know, like if I really want to engage in politics or 
I hear there was something important going on in DC today that seemed to dominate all the headlines, right? And if I want to find out more about that, especially if I want to follow, you know, a short uh, span uh, uh, political uh, uh, theater, right? Like if you really want to hear what people have to say in 280 characters or less, I just log into that account, right? It's really easy on your smartphone to put multiple Twitter accounts on and then just turn off notifications, the ones you don't want to hear from. And then if you don't want to learn about politics, go on your education feed where, you know, it's a lot of stuff that that is related to my career and things that I'm passionate about and things that I enjoy the debate about. And then, you know, just segregate it out. And that's also the reason why that I don't do a lot of, of, of work stuff on Facebook. Facebook is about pictures of people's kids and their dogs and cats and their vacations. In my humble opinion, I get to a little bit of work stuff there, but it, different channels for different means. And I think if we stopped trying to have one tool that does it all, I think it would help us segregate those parts of our lives a little better. Yeah. And being able to filter in that way is just an essential skill of our current age as well as the future. So, hey, can you do the Apollo 11 article? And then I've got another moon, a moon landing related one to share as well. Sure. Just a really great article from the Wall Street Journal on July 14th. Obviously, uh, as I'm sure Wes has too, because I know he's a space geek as well, that um, I've been super into the Apollo 11 stuff in the, in, the, in the last couple of weeks. And there was an extraordinary article from the Wall Street Journal that talked about that the real hidden hero of Apollo 11 uh, wasn't the hardware, although the hardware was super cool. And obviously minor, miniaturization that NASA engaged in in the 1960s really did lead to the personal computer of the 1980s and 90s. So make, make no mistake of the importance of hardware. But it was really the software that, that was really quite extraordinary. And um, it wasn't just you know, creating code that did interesting things, you know, in some cases decades uh, ahead of when we have otherwise created uh, a software uh, to do similar things, but uh, the extraordinary challenges that they had because of the environment and the uh, space that they're talking about, um, it, it's, it's an interesting history of how code played into that. And then, of course, how that inspired code to be something that then drove computer development for, well, frankly, the coming five decades that led to, you know, the fact that Wes and I are in two different cities and two different states and two parts of the country. We are engaged in an almost high definition video uh, conference um, where we are able to then broadcast to the world from a hotel room and, and Wes's home. So um, interesting if you are a history computer person and also um, it's not hard to kind of draw back Computer science is a broader uh, uh, industry, a hobby, or or even a, a field of study to the Apollo mission. So I encourage you to read that article if you are into the space history. Absolutely, and I have a related video that I found. I've, you know, yes, definitely tuned into uh, some of the Apollo Eleven coverage and some of the live, you know, panel discussions involving both living astronauts and support personnel that were all over the place, you know, around the globe, uh, helping track, recover uh, modules and, and all kinds of things. So in the midst of all that, uh, either YouTube recommended this or somehow I stumbled upon it. It's not new. This is from uh, January 29th, 2013, uh, but it's a space.com video. Their channel is, is video from space and it's called uh, Moon Landings Faked. Filmmaker says not. And the uh, description is writer-director S.G. Collins of Postwar Media debunks every theory that the Apollo moon landings could have been faked in a studio. Um, and I'm going to say on a personal note, you know, our daughter, our, young, our youngest daughter, uh, who's going to be a sophomore, she's about to turn 16, she has 
been ha- she has had to confront more conspiracy theory content, more fringe content to include, you know, videos about the moon landings being faked along with a bunch of other things than I ever had to. And I would argue that YouTube kids today, which is probably the majority of teens, and this may be unbeknownst to to parents and educators, you know, have faced because of the algorithm just a ton of fringe content. And so I think this is a really, really good question from a media literacy standpoint, as well as a historical standpoint with the, you know, anniversary that we've had of, of Apollo 11, um, to talk to students about, you know, do you think the moon landings were, were real? Why or why not? Um, I'm, I'm not going to bet money on this, but if I wanted to gamble, you know, I, I would bet that there's a large number of teenagers that'll be in classrooms, you know, here in North America in, in just a few weeks as school kicks off who have some serious doubts about this. And so this video is fantastic because it's from a technical standpoint, how there's absolutely no way that we had the storage, you know, capacity on the, the tech, the, um, you know, cameras and the, the, you know, green not green screen technologies, but just, you know, they, he breaks it down through all the different things that you would have to do. And in order to make sure that it's perfect and there's not flaws and everything like that. I mean, the electronics weren't there. We are so inundated with high quality media today that I think, and this may be even, you know, more true for young people. I don't know. We just kind of take it for granted. Oh, that's, that's, that's can be tricked. You know, we can, we can fake that. We can trick that, you know, maybe today, I mean, of course today, you know, the kind of quality that was coming back from the moon is something that's fakeable. But anyway, this is a great video. And so I actually shared that with Rachel. Um, <clears throat> we haven't had a chance to discuss it yet, but I'm really looking forward to it because I think it it just presents some very good factual information about the state of technology in 1969, you know, through 73. Um, and again, I think from a media literacy standpoint, we need to be awake to how YouTube, there's a a fear and and concern over radicalization. Uh, And there is that, I mean, in terms of like Islamic radicalization or other kinds of, you know, really fringe groups, but just, you know, content that's on the fringe, that's not mainstream. Our kids have have probably seen a lot of it and, and then involves the moon landing. So it's a great time to be working on media literacy and also talking about an incredible achievement. Um, and of course, there's other good connections to make to that. I listened to the Annie Jacobson interview with Joe Rogan this last week, and uh, she's the author of Operation Paperclip, which is a phenomenal book. I listened to that on Audible, and that's the story of how the United States following World War II, you know, brought lots of Nazi scientists over to the United States so that we could beat the Russians to the moon and also develop ICBMs, nuclear program, you know, lots of stuff like that, so good connections and good conversations to have with kids. And if you want more backstory that's very intriguing to the space race, I would recommend Operation Paperclip by Annie Jacobson. Awesome. Well, I want to do one more quick one just because uh, um, it, it's interesting and funny to me. So um, earlier this year, I attended the uh, inaugural DLAC conference, Digital Learning um, 
uh, forgot what the A stand for conference in Austin, Texas. It's the, um, it's a K-12 distance learning focused conference, uh, that will, it's already announced for next year. So it will be an ongoing conference, but it's my first time in Austin and my first time in a city that has the scooters. You've never, you've never been to Austin, Texas before. No, I had been, but not since the scooters. Were oh, here, okay. Right? Yeah, so like I had been there, I had barbecue. Actually, I've been to South by Southwest. I presented okay. there before. So, but so it's the first time I got to see scooters, right? And I, frankly, I think they're death traps, and I'm not coordinated enough enough to to ride one consistently. And I'm a little more paranoid post kidney transplant about doing things that could hurl my body into you know something like a curb. So, but ignoring that, I, there's a video of one of me somewhere on the internet, and I did scoot one around uh, one evening going out with uh, you know the uh, Virtual Learning Leadership Alliance tech directors, which is a pretty wild crowd. So. Um, we were, uh, enjoying that in Austin, but it, it's, it was always kind of wild to me because, you know, like literally they are pick up and drop wherever you want, right? And they're app based. And so once you jump off of it, it just charges you for what you use. But apparently there is a thriving business, um, according to, um, uh, the Verge, uh, today's Verge, where there are, um, uh, this thriving businesses. And I believe this one is in San Francisco. I'm sorry, San Diego, where um, these scooters are being dropped in places that are private property, right? You can't go drop, you know, drop random stuff on private property because it, it's trespassing in essence. And there is a business that that is basically scooter collections. I think they're calling themselves scooter scoops where they show up. And if there are scooters on your property, they're unwanted property, you can just pick them up and they, they repo them. And they have yards now full of these various company scooters. And I think it's just super hilarious because um, obviously, you know, it's, it's another tale of the new economy, right? Is we're, you know, fumbling ways to maybe try to create less resource intensive, uh, 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 short term transportation alternatives, yada, yada, yada. That now there is a business based on the new business, which is how to get rid of these annoyances for people. Um, and I did talk to a, a, uh, I think it was an Uber driver in, in Austin who said that there have been quite a few, um, uh, uh, close calls where, you know, idiot scooters, uh, that are people that just don't understand that they're a vehicle and you need to be, you know, cognizant of, of, of the laws of, of streets, et cetera, you know, are, are zooming past and in front of buses. And, you know, by the way, you versus bus on a, and you're in a scooter, you will lose that battle, right? There's no uh, scenario where you win being on, on the scooter. So I just thought that was an interesting article that there's a new business picking up after a new business. Wow. I'll do two quick ones then. We can do some Geeks of the Week. Uh, this is under the Security tab. So Ars Technica from July 23rd reports judge allows suit against AT&T after $24 million cryptocurrency theft. Now, <clears throat> several things about this. So there's a guy who is a, who is a big cryptocurrency owner, and he was using his phone for two-step verification. Uh, and so he got hacked and the first time contacted AT&T. They said they were going to implement this program where he was going to have to use this special like six digit code or whatever for somebody to grab their SIM <clears throat> because to kind of back up, like we've talked a lot about how using two-step verification and password managers, we all need to be doing that everywhere we can use different complicated passwords that are long on every single website. Do not repeat the password anywhere. The only way to do that and maintain your sanity is with a password manager like LastPass or 1Password, something like that. But then also turn on two-step. Well, 
your your cell phone is actually not great, especially if people want to target you. Like if you own million dollars, millions of dollars of cryptocurrency, which by the way I don't, uh, because they can call your carrier like AT and T and say, "Hey, I got this new phone, or I lost my phone, and I need you to swap my SIM card," and then they can take over your your line. Um, so that's what AT and T promised this guy to do. They failed to do it. Then he got hacked again, and like twenty four million dollars worth of cryptocurrency got stolen from him. And so he is going after AT and T, and and the and it looks like the judge is going to allow for that. It's on appeal. But one of the biggest takeaways here is. Let's recognize that the cell phone text message is a very hackable technology. And so when it comes to two-step, your best bet is going to be to be like Google and have a physical key, a YubiKey or something else uh, that you're actually either plugging in or it's using a wireless technology to authenticate to your device. Now, I still think using uh, SMS two-step or multi-factor is better than no multi-factor. But I thought that was a pretty interesting article from a security standpoint. And then the last one is a Lifehacker article from July 19th that says these eight browser extensions stole data from millions. And the, you know, we'll talk a lot about Chrome and, and security and, you know, how it's being wonderful. Um, but there are malicious extensions that are out there and we need to remember and we need to remind students and teachers and parents and everybody else when you click to install something on your computer, whether it's in your browser, on your phone, wherever it is, when you authorize something to access your data, like to access your Google account or to log in with Facebook or something like that, we need to be very, very careful. You need to make sure that whoever is the developer of that app or that extension or program, that that's someone you trust. And how do you know that you trust them? Well, a lot of times that's because they are recommended to you by a reputable entity, by someone else who you trust. or And you can also read reviews and things like that. It's it's challenging. But anyway, this was a, an eye-opening article talking again about how data, you know, it, this is just another sort of eye roll. Like, okay, another breach, right? Because we're so used to these happening. Um, but it's a reminder that, yes, even in the wonderful world, of the Chromebook and the Chrome browser, there still are security threats and dangers, and we need to be savvy and careful. So those are my last two. Do you have some geek of the week goodness for us this week, Jason? I do. I actually changed mine at the last minute because I remembered I listened to just part of my 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 uh, uh, car trip this weekend. Um, I started listening to a podcast that I queued up for a couple of months, but I hadn't listened to the episodes, and I'm so glad that I jumped in and did. Um, the podcast is called Dark Net Diaries, and it's, you know, wherever uh, 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 other great podcasts are available in, in various apps. But it is tales from white hat uh, and, and, and not-so-white hat hackers. And we've talked a little bit in the past about um, a white hat hacker. It's uh, uh, the notion of someone who hacks for good or hacks to exploit a hole so that people can patch them and, 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 and figure out, you know, how to deal with, with X, Y, and Z. But just, uh, I listened to, I think it was four different episodes and, um, a lot about social engineering, um, the notion of hacking into something by, um, you know, encouraging someone to give you a piece of information or, or faking something or, or, or using some kind of theatric in order to to get inside of a system, uh, probably the uh, most famous example of social engineering is a couple of years ago. There was a, a security firm that did a test on a bank by sticking twenty five 
uh, uh, thumb drives with malware and spreading them throughout the parking lot. And like 22 of the 25 of them ultimately were plugged into a warp computer, which then distributed a payload of nasty ware and, and called it good. But, um, you know, it's, it's a little voyeuristic in that, you know, like you're, you find yourself kind of cheering for, uh, you know, the, the success of the, um, of, of, of the, the characters that are, are trying to hack into systems. But if you really want to get to see how sneaky it is and how really human hacking is, right? The notion of you are taking advantage and finding uh, exploits in, in human beings. It's an extraordinarily good listen and it's especially great on long car rides. So that's Darknet Diaries available where finer podcasts are aggregated. That is great. I just shared a, a tweet to that, and then I'm doing a shout-out to uh, Brian Turnbaugh, who is Wego Twits on Twitter, and he shared tons of great podcast recommendations with me at the <clears throat> Summer Institute for Digital Literacy. I'll include a Twitter moment that I put together last week uh, that is filled with lots of the recommendations that he had. My Geek of the Week is from the Summer Institute on Digital Literacy, and it is phenomenal, and it's free. It's Timeline by the Night Lab. Um, have you used any of those tools that the Night Lab has put together, Jason? Timeline no. or, oh, my gosh, um, they've just got some fantastic projects. And so they're, this is easy to make beautiful timelines that you simply use a Google sh uh, sheet, a Google spreadsheet with. And so I'll uh, include this link in the show notes as well. The Friar Family Media Timeline. This has been my project today. I have <clears throat> cracked open the blue and white Macintosh G3 tower that we trucked up to Oklahoma in 2006 from Lubbock, Texas. And <clears throat> one of the reasons why I've continued to persuade my wife, we don't want to get rid of it, we've got to keep it, is because on those hard drives, I had the original iMovies that I started creating in like 99 when iMovie came out. But at that time, when I exported them, I didn't have the, the web space and we were like connecting with modems. Remember those, you know, and, and, and then, you know, dial up internet or I mean, you know, slow, uh, direct connections, but we didn't have the speed to have high, you know, bandwidth because a five minute movie there was like almost a gig. So anyway, I have been exporting videos. Uh, you can link whatever you want, but I've been linking, um, uh, photo albums and then also um, videos that I've been using Handbrake, which is a great freeware program, which you can rip DVDs, but you can also use it as I am to uh, convert DV video into uh, streamable MP4 video. And I've been throwing that up on Amazon S3 because I don't want to deal with copyright strikes. And I used all kinds of, of course, copyrighted music in a fair use fashion, of course, for this non-commercial family production. But Timeline by the Knight Foundation. They've got other very powerful and cool tools, completely free and integrates with Google Sheets. Love it. So Jason, where can we find you when you're not pontificating here on the EdTech Situation Room on Wednesdays? Well, I'm on Twitter at TechSavvyTeach. I like to share articles throughout the week. I tend to have a bend towards uh, uh, kind of interesting blog at the Tech Savvy Teacher blog at the Northwest Council for Computer, uh, Computer Education page blog.ncc.org. And you, Dr. Fryer. I am W. Fryer on Twitter, my blog, speedofcreativity.org. I actually published, this is sad, my third podcast of the year on my Speed of Creativity, Speed of Creativity podcast channel, uh, which I have been kind of a pod fader on, but um, had a real big reflection last week after this 
great summer institute on digital literacy. And I'm looking forward to being a lot more prolific in my blog posts as well as podcasts. You can also find me on Anchor. So if you can tell your smart device, Jason, you can test it and let me know if it works on uh, the wonderful, wonderful Madam A. Uh, listen to the latest episode of Class with Dr. Fryer. So that's me. Well- this action here, though, is the EdTech Situation Room podcast. We are a once-a-week podcast where Wes and I get together and talk tech. Sure, I think we do it because we like to talk to each other and, and get a lot off of, of each other's perspectives on the world. But we know from our listeners that, that there's usually some value for the, the listeners of our podcast as well. If you'd like to download EdTech Situation Room, we're available wherever finer podcasts are aggregated, including an app near you. Or you can go and download teeny tiny uh, versions on our at our website, edtechsr.com, where our show notes are also available. And at least for now, we are up on YouTube every week. Uh, we may have new ways of engaging with YouTube and broadcasting in the future, but I think we'll continue to put up episodes on our YouTube channel. Until then, we encourage you to stay safe, stay savvy, and we'll see you next time on the EdTech Situation Room.